The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hello, Jack. Hello, Zach. How you doing? Doing great on this gorgeous Monday afternoon in California. How's life treating you in New York? Life is good. The weather is not. But, you know, that's what you sign up for here. So we have another fantastic guest today. Uh, Zach, as always, trust you to give a proper introduction. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, there was this event at the Wire office in San Francisco that combined two of my greatest passions in life, blockchain and poker. It's kind of a crypto networking event, so to speak, during uh, the SF Blockchain Week uh, earlier in October. So at my first table, uh, not only was uh, Charlie Lee there, but uh, Louis Aboud, managing partner of the wire fund was there when we struck up a conversation and ended up having a really great time. I had a particularly good time. It was my first live tournament that I ever won, but Louis I'm sure had a great time as well, uh, amassing chips uh, pretty early on with a bunch of all in. So then we, you know, kept the conversation going and, you know, now we're here on the podcast to discuss tokenomics. So Louis, how are you doing today? I'm well, it's great to be here. Congratulations again on the win. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Two biggest, two biggest uh, passions: crypto and crypto and poker. That's degeneracy squared. <laughs> that might be a good name yeah, of Zach a future Resnick. podcast: degeneracy squared. <laughs> Not a man who can't tolerate a little bit of risk in life. So, Louis, aside from hosting poker tournaments, tell us about Wire and your role there. Yeah, so so Wire is a, a really interesting company in the crypto space. Its its story has evolved quite rapidly, as has kind of the industry as a whole. But it was started back in uh, 2013 as Snapcard, and back then it was a merchant processor and multi-currency wallet, kind of similar to a BitPay. So it wanted to do merchant payments, but you know it was quite early back then for that sort of use case. The amount of people actually looking to spend crypto was relatively small, you know, probably one hundredth of what it is today. Uh, in 2016, that business pivoted towards doing international payments. So kind of like a remittance business, did a lot of B2B payments, kind of 
similar to what Ripple talks about doing with XRP, but using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And just recently, we've taken all of that infrastructure, which is, you know, regulatory licensing, uh, banking connections all around the world, compliance capability, the sort of things that you need to run a money services business. And we've kind of productized that and are now offering it to crypto projects and companies in the space who don't want to have to deal with these things in-house. So a couple of examples would be our on-chain compliance program, which is basically a KYC solution for DEXs. Uh, We can talk about that whole thing if you want to in a bit. And we also offer fiat on and off ramps integrated into dApps. So an example would be going logging into a DEX and being able to click a button and basically purchase DAI with cash in your bank account to trade on that DEX. Now, what I do personally is I run Wire Capital, which is our fund, um, and we're making long-term investments in crypto companies, tokens, currencies, basically any digital asset that exists on a public blockchain. And it's very much informed by the intelligence that we get kind of on the industry as a whole, working with a whole bunch of different companies in the space and my background in equity investing in public markets. So yeah, that's kind of what I do. It's it's a bit sort of adjacent to Wire's core business, but you know, since we've kind of pivoted towards serving a lot of crypto companies and projects, I find that it's it's a great way to keep track of how our investments are coming to market um, and what their sort of ability is to actually execute on a commercial plan rather than you know talk themselves up in in a white paper. Okay, so what's your how are you interacting day to day with, you know, the people at Wire, not Wire Capital, and how is that informing your investing strategy? Uh, well, look, it's we're very much one team. I think while while our bus- businesses are sort of separate, you know, we we sit together, we talk to each other every day. I attend a lot of the same meetings as my team members. They might be meeting them to discuss you know, potential partnerships or integrations. And I'm there really just to keep track of what's going on in the market. So it's just like a hugely, you know, I found that coming from a public markets background where you don't really interact with the companies you're investing with as much, you're you're more kind of talking to senior management every few months or so. This is VC, you know, the kind of early stage space that we're investing in is very much more hands-on and that's kind of reflected in our shared interactions between the core business and the funds management business. In terms of um, the, you know, informing our investment decisions, uh, as I said, it's really about seeing how these companies and projects are executing. You know, if they're partnering with us, generally it's because Compliance or fiat liquidity and things like that are core to their go-to-market strategy um, and knowing how people are thinking about some of the very fundamental problems faced by projects in the space today uh, is hugely valuable from an investment perspective. You basically get to separate the operators that have commercial sense from those who, who don't have any. Right. And so, I mean, not to get too into specifics if it's a... Not possible, but does Wire hold assets of companies that it's not working with uh, in a direct way? Yeah, good question. Um, so yeah, the the investment landscape 
and strategy is fundamentally completely separate from the core business. But that said, you know, my particular interest in the market, you know, a lot of it is around asset issuance and exchange and really the decentralized financial products. Uh, and that just happens to be the area that wire has great potential sort of adding value to crypto companies. So I would say that there is a significant overlap, but it's almost kind of coincidental. And wire capital's strategy and where it will deploy capital is completely independent from what the core business is doing. It just happens to be that the the kind of segments of the market that I'm particularly interested in investing in uh, and that I think are compelling from a kind of long-term value perspective happen to be, you know, the the areas where wire can offer a significant value add. Okay, that's interesting. So I just read a Medium post you wrote about blockchain being a major disruptor to the software as a service industry. And, you know, I think maybe before we sort of dive into, you know, where I'd like to go with this subject, it'd be worth having you know, recap that article for the listeners a bit. And we'll obviously link to that post uh, in the show notes. I think for everyone who's interested in this show, uh, they would enjoy this article quite a bit. So could you give us, you know, sort of a little bit of the high level overview of the contents of that article? I'll try and truncate it as much as possible. I think what I was trying to do is really highlight the strengths that uh, not so much, you know, blockchains as a concept, but more kind of crypto networks or economic networks, the strengths that they have in creating a new kind of structure for software delivery that is fundamentally lower cost or more competitive than the SaaS industry. I mean, in that article, I, I described why SaaS economics were superior to, you know, the economics of on-premise implementations of software. And, you know, there are a couple of reasons for that, but mainly it's about economies of scale. When you've got on-premise software, if you think about enterprise implementations of on-premise software, if you're a software company, that means all of your customers are running the software themselves on their own hardware, managed by their own employees. Chances are that the software itself is customized to that individual customer's needs. And that means that everybody's running on a different code base. Basically, what you end up with with on-premise software is it's it's highly fragmented kind of architecturally, whereas software as a service, all of the applications are hosted by the software provider in multi-tenanted hardware, in multi-tenanted software. And what this means is that everybody's sharing the same resources and those resources can be deployed at a much larger scale and you just get massive efficiency benefits kind of like efficiency efficiency through mass production. And that actually turned out to be quite a high margin business. But what happens is that the software companies that you know write the code, they also end up selling the service element, which is like hosting the software, which was you know previously done by the customer. But what this means is that they have a monopoly over service delivery. So if they write the code, they sort of go and purchase a whole bunch of AWS capacity, and then they resell that at a significant margin effectively to their end customers. And this is evident in in all sort of fully SaaS end-to-end cloud services. The margins are effectively reselling this kind of cloud infrastructure. 
and and reaping kind of excess economics from that. And what crypto networks can do is basically break down this economic equation where you have a team writing the software and it's open source, so you don't have to pay any license fees or subscription fees. And then you can have the the service element of the SaaS equation, which is data storage and computing power and all of the things that make up an AWS instance. Um, you can have that delivered by a highly competitive commoditized market for basically distributed digital services. So this is like a very long-term kind of thesis. Uh, none of the infrastructure required to make this practically viable exists today, but it's simply a, a exercise in, you know, assessing the, the structural difference between software as a service, which is basically one company writes the software, they sell the software, they deliver the software as a service, and through that fully vertically integrated model, they're able to extract significant margins to a different system where a team writes the code, they don't even sell the code, they capture upside, they're exposed to the future adoption of the code through the novel token economics that they choose to implement. And really the, the, the cost savings come from not having to pay license fees to the people that write the code because they're compensated indirectly and also having the service element of the SaaS equation delivered through highly competitive markets for digital services. That's the, that's the, that's the long-winded gist. <laughs> no, that's great. And so what I'm curious is, so where do you see the brighter future for blockchain? Since we've sort of touched on two large sorts of fields that it seems like you're bullish on both of these fields, one being blockchain as a way to disrupt uh, the existing financial services industry, and the other area being disrupting the software-as-a-service industry. So at Wire Capital, it seems like you guys are more focused on the financial services side of things. Is that the case? I, I would say that 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 is the case right now, simply because the it's it's my view that it, it's more it's going to take a very long time for end user applications or like enterprise systems to be replicated on distributed networks. In terms of financial products, that was the f- the, f- the first thing that was created in this whole thing that we now call crypto. That the first application that was created was a financial product. And that worked from day one, right? That was Bitcoin. It actually doesn't take a lot to create viable financial products using this technology. You can see MakerDAO's done it with DAI. You know, ZeroX and a whole other projects have done it with the idea of decentralized asset exchange. Bitcoin and the space of the whole, as a whole, have, have done it with, with the idea of currency and money. Um, and there are issues with all of these applications, but fundamentally it's a lot easier to bring these things to market and the instant low cost distribution that you get from crypto products kind of you know you can access any market globally and sell these financial services to people that otherwise would wouldn't otherwise have access to them that to me seems like a much more realistic short-term thesis for you know not short-term sort of medium-term thesis for end user adoption than kind of what i'm talking about in that article about SaaS economics, which is like a very, very long-term thesis. 
Um, in terms of like how we think about the space generally, I think you can, you can break it up into a few different elements. You know, open finance, you alluded to it there. I think that, that is, that is a core piece to it. You know, the, the separate, it's kind of tangential to that, but the idea of a reserve asset like Bitcoin that acts as a kind of monetary reserve or digital gold, I think is a separate thesis to open finance and one that we do believe in. And we can see early traction, you know, of that kind of asset type being adopted in markets that have hyperinflation or currency crises, you know, be it Venezuela or just countries with high inflation like Argentina. There's a, there's a massive, the community is overrepresented in those markets. The whole idea of kind of novel software economics and novel markets um, around digital goods or commodities such as data storage, bandwidth, computing power, or novel markets around things like gaming items and digital collectibles. Uh, I do think that there's significant value there, and that kind of ties into the what we were talking about just before. And I think finally you can throw in this whole concept of Web3, which is something that I don't... I probably spend less of my time thinking about, like building decentralized social networks and products like this. I think that there is a need in the market for these things, but people just don't really know or understand it yet. And the the tolerance for basically the trade-off between user experience and perceived, you know, decentralization or self-sovereignty I feel like that trade-off is still in the marketplace, still heavily, heavily, heavily bent towards UX. And people are going, like, not going to sacrifice anything in terms of UX in order to, you know, use these products on, in, in a kind of mainstream sense. You know, often when people talk about the Web3 vision, I think about, you know, that YouTube channel Unbox Therapy where the guy reviews, uh, I don't know his name, but he reviews smartphones and electronic devices, things like that, really sort of high-volume consumer goods that everybody owns and uses every day. And you can tell by the, the, the sort of things that he uses to compare devices, like you know how many milliseconds it takes for the fingerprint scanner to work and things like that. You just realize that you know, for, for, a, for a Web3 kind of centralized internet service replacement technology to be adopted it's going to have to be extremely slick and i don't see the infrastructure is capable of delivering that for for quite a while but yeah i'd I'd break it down that way open finance reserve assets software economics and novel markets and uh web 3.0 yeah i think that's a really great breakdown it's interesting to me to think about why is it that blockchain seems so much more immediately competitive with the financial services industry you know i wonder is it sort of just a factor or a function of the sort of fit of the technology to that industry? Or is it more a function of, you know, a lack of innovation, a lack of competition in that industry up to this point? Probably a combination of the two, but I don't know if you have any thoughts. I think what you're, what you're saying is, is true to an extent about competition. I'd say that that is less and less true every day. And, that the the area where competition is coming in in financial services are not by traditional sort of financial services companies. The the competition is coming from companies that would refer to themselves as fintech companies, right? And this is a you know obviously an industry that's much larger than 
crypto itself, but the point being that there are now disruptors, so to speak, in the financial services space that are tech-focused, tech-first, and they basically you know, get access to financing and, and things like that at wholesale. So uh, I would say that competition is coming. Um, what The reasons why I think it's particularly compelling for crypto, one is that one of the key sort of challenges with building financial products is the, the infrastructure piece connecting to the, the relevant infrastructure and getting that kind of financial distribution. You don't have to worry about that in crypto because everything has global distribution by default and at zero cost. So I think that's a hugely powerful thing. If I build a financial product, the only barrier towards entering a new market really are the regulatory barriers. And depending on the kind of product you're creating and the kind of markets that you're going for, those might be negligible or they could be extremely high, right? Uh, basically doing anything in the US with these kind of financial products is you know, in a compliant manner is, is quite difficult, but, you know, the, the, the world is quite large and we're talking about creating new financial products or replicating old financial products, but in the crypto space, generally speaking, we're thinking about serving people that aren't that well served by the current system. The other aspect is that, we're, we're, I was just talking about the UX hurdle for Web3. If you think about the UX hurdle, there are already dApps deployed on Ethereum that deliver financial products with a better UX than traditional financial services. You can't say that about any kind of Web3 product. You know, without exception, all of these things are materially worse in user experience than, than you know, a centralized alternative. But, you know, if you can find me a financial institution that will allow you to get a secured loan in a simple and easier way as, for instance, creating, you know, like getting some DAI through MakerDAO or, you know, doing a, a loan on Dharma, you know, the, the front ends of these things are hugely, like they're in their infancy. Some of these things have only been deployed for a few months, but they're already faster and easier to use than going to a bank, giving them all of your personal information and spending the, the day or two or whatever it takes to to get a loan. I think that's hugely encouraging that the space has actually created easier to use financial products without even trying, right? Like this, all of these, these outcomes really were sort of side effects to a greater vision that a lot of these projects have. So yeah, I would say that the, the, in a competitive sense, the, the UX that sort of crypto based financial products are competing against, it's a much easier sort of landscape and in some cases they've already usurped uh, sort of traditional financial incumbents yeah and perhaps the sort of disadvantages of crypto the disadvantages of decentralization you know in terms of you know the cost of necessary redundancy is less of a drawback you know, in the financial services industry you know both because of consumers tolerance for cost and also it's just not necessarily as computationally intensive as some of the you know sort of software as a service social media type applications are likely to be yeah absolutely um that's i mean we say that now but probably 
part of that kind of like obviously compared to those sort of software products that you're talking about yes it's far less computationally intensive but i would disagree with saying that what we have at the moment is enough for financial services because it's not right the only reason why you know ethereum is effectively at capacity and for all intents and purposes nobody is using it for traditional financial services so i would say I would agree in principle that it's going to be easier to achieve kind of layer one, the layer one scalability required to make these products work than it is for kind of the web three vision. But I'd say we're definitely not there yet. Yeah, I I agree with that. I guess my point is more so that the benefits of decentralization have to be weighed against the cost of decentralization. And I think that is just a much more favorable equation in financial services than in these other fields. You'll, if we go back to your article, I think the thesis is more so that these sort of software-as-a-service products can be replaced in a way that's at a lower cost to the consumer. And that's it's not necessarily saying that there's some other advantage of blockchain other than just lowering cost you know, that's likely to make blockchain a, a big disruptor in this space. In financial services, that same thesis might hold, but the decentralization aspect is much more important when you're talking about moving around large quantities of money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, it's a do- it's a double edged sword with all of these things. You know, in that article, I was definitely highlighting the economic points, and you might struggle to find other reasons why a distributed system is good for that. For kind of like the, the, the social media or like the online media content distribution market, I think that there are fundamental benefits of kind of blockchain technology, crypto networks, whatever you want to call it, especially around, you know, identity or basically having a censorship resistant means of communication and just not centralizing power with a company that can be co-opted by governments or whatever like i think the the back and forth between washington and the big tech companies over the last 12 months for me personally has been really really concerning because what you've effectively seen is it was almost like uh some of the big tech companies bet on the republicans kind of losing power in this midterm elections because they were happy to pander to the democrats you know in all of these sort of hearings but what you might see is that, you know, because you've, you've effectively had the Democrats calling for legislative intervention in some of these mega tech companies because they've effectively monetize, uh, monopolized the distribution of information in a way that is, is politically threatening. But then what you might see is a reaction basically from the other side of politics saying that we're going to enforce kind of a corporatized version of the First Amendment on your platform so people can say whatever they want. But basically now you've got the big tech companies and their their information and media distribution platforms have now become, you know, an asset that both sides of politics are now jockeying to control. That That's just, yeah, I can't think of anything worse than federal governments having meaningful influence over the way information is distributed on platforms like Facebook or Twitter or, you know, Google search even. Yeah, it's, it's a little horrifying. Although I'll say that the public nature of, you know, this intervention 
may bode well for those of us who are, you know, poised to be early investors and adopters of the competition to these sorts of networks. But overall, I don't think the intervent, like, <laughs> the benefit that the three of us might receive from this intervention, I don't think is enough to justify. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I guess, a little less optimistic that, or I, I'm concerned that there's enough bipartisan, you know, enemies or that need to be quieted that regardless of who ends up in power, this trend, I suspect it'll continue. Yeah. I mean, I'm from a high level. I'm optimistic that the, the people or the market will kind of figure this out, you know, especially with respect. You've already seen the massive disengagement that Facebook has experienced in kind of core Western markets. You know, their engagement is falling off a cliff and, you know, they must be really panicking now because, you know, if anything that's happened in Western markets is replicated in all of their growth markets, kind of, you know, which is like rest of world, basically, they're going to be in some serious trouble. And I think now you could kind of tell from, you know, Mark Zuckerberg put out that post saying we're thinking about decentralization and cryptocurrencies and all of these things. You know, at least now the conversation has started within, you know, Facebook had talked about it a lot publicly the need for them to kind of disrupt themselves in this respect in order to not be usurped by, you know, either companies that have different principles to them or technologies that really undermine their position in the marketplace. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting time for sure. But uh, I think the market will, will work it out. Whether the, the sort of crypto side of things, the technology there is ready for that influx of users, you know, I'd, I'd like to see kind of more rapid progress because I feel like this, this stuff's really coming to a head quite, quite soon. It could be another, another couple of years of companies like Facebook tripping over themselves trying to deal with these problems and disenfranchising a lot of their user base. They're going to be looking for alternatives. And if there's a good decentralized system that's usable, I've, strong reason to believe that will get traction, but uh, it's really the usability aspect of that equation that I'm questioning right now whether or not we'll be ready in time. Well, there's a lot of other stuff I think we'd want to ask you, Louis, but I would be remiss if we didn't end on just a, a really great uh, sentence by yourself. So unless there's anything you want to talk about, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, sometimes on the podcast, as some of you listening might know, I end up just listening to Jack and the guests talk, and that's okay with me because that means I learned the most. So uh, I really enjoyed listening to this today. Louis, hope to see you again sometime soon at either Vietnamese place or maybe the poker table. Yeah, or maybe we can combine the two and get some Vietnamese-themed poker going. <laughs> Louis, is there a, <laughs> if our listeners are trying to find you anywhere or find more information about Wire, wire Capital, uh, where should they head to? Wire Capital has a medium. I haven't posted that much on there. I think that was my third article I posted today, but hopefully I'll be adding some more. You can just Google me, Louis Abood, and you'll be able to find my Twitter, or you can go to wire.capital to check out our website. But yeah, we're a private fund, so I'm not inducing anybody to uh, invest in us. Well, Louis, thanks again for your time, your insight. I uh, look forward to reading future posts. And yeah. Well, thank you. It was great to be here.